This morning we'll be picking up our study in Acts, uh, the church on earth, and we'll be reading the first 12 verses of Acts 27. The title of today's message, to get all these little points out of the way, is The Voyage. The Voyage. I remember The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Star Trek Voyager 9 or something it was, right? Uh, <laughs> Vin and Uncle Joji will laugh at me for getting that wrong. But in Acts, if you remember, we're looking at the church on earth. We know in Revelation that the church goes to heaven and the church is ultimately Christ's bride in heaven. But until that day, the church is on earth. And the church isn't a building, you know, although we call it that. We say, let's go down to the church. I like saying, let's go to the church building. Uh, and maybe it's just because I'm, I'm weird like that. But the church is really people. The church is the body of Christ. It's not a building. It's not a location. It's not a denomination. Although those things are all related to the church. The church is you and I. The church is believers. The church is people that we fellowship with who have the spirit of God. We had that uh, party for Mia the other week and some friends were over. And I was talking to several of them. And some of them, it was just this sweet fellowship that was there that was, wow, I haven't tasted this in a while. And we weren't even talking necessarily about anything necessarily spiritual, but you could just sense it, that uh, uh, they love God. And the church is the body of Jesus, is living, moving, and doing the things he did and still does on earth. It wasn't just this time back during the Acts of the Apostles, but that it's really the Acts of the church. That it's still going on today where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, right? But where the spirit of the Lord is, the things of Jesus are still happening. People are being saved. People are being healed. People are being uh, freed from sin and free to serve him. That like the song we sang earlier, that it's, it's not about accolades. It's not about success. That the true measure is God's presence with us. That if I'm successful in life, if I see God's plan for my life, that ultimately the end all be all of that is not a medal, is not an earthly reward, is just God's presence, is just being closer to him. And that's what the church is truly about, the true church is about. And the church is under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, is possessed by God, to use that term, that the church should be under the control and the authority of Jesus himself by the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit says this is wicked, then it's wicked. If the Holy Spirit says, yes, other people are doing it, but it's not for you, then it's not for you. Because the church isn't perfect, but the church is called to be holy. That's the difference. That's what apostles are sent out ones, but that we are all called to be holy as God is holy. Does that mean that we're not going to fail? No. Should we do our best to not fail? Should we strive to not fail? Absolutely. But it doesn't negate the call in our lives. That if you have failed, you have fallen, God can help get you back up. It may not be exactly the way it was intended before that failure, but God can still call you to be holy. Don't let past unholiness prevent you from seeking present holiness and God's presence in holiness. And that early church lived earnestly for Christ. They believed so much that he was coming tomorrow. They got rid of all their stuff. Now, that necessarily wasn't the wisest thing as we uh, could go into another study about, but that's the way we should live. That we should plan and prepare for 10 years from now, physically, but spiritually, we should be ready to go at any moment and know that those plans won't matter if Jesus comes back today. And may he come back today. That would be awesome because who wants to go to work tomorrow? Not me. <laughs> but I'm thankful I have it and I'm prepared to do so if the time comes. There's a couple statements that I'm going to call out 
during this message that just kind of came out as I was studying, and I hope that that's the Lord. But the first one is the difference of discipleship. The difference of discipleship. That there are people who are disciples of Jesus. And I would say that that's, we like to use these terms in modern Christianity. I'm a follower of Christ. I don't like to say Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Yes, I get it. That's great. You're a follower of Christ. But I think even within people who would proclaim that, that there's a difference. There are people who are clearly disciples of Jesus, and there are people who maybe haven't gotten that far yet. Maybe are just still just churchgoers, pew warmers. Maybe they love God. But it's hard to say that there's a discipleship factor in their lives, that they're not looking to be fed, they're not looking to learn, they're not looking to grow, and they're not certainly not in a place where they're actively following God and leaving the things behind. And it's sad when we see that, when we talk to people and there hasn't been that growth in life, that travel in life, and they could live in the same town their whole life, that's not what I'm talking about, but that their spiritual journey hasn't gone any further. And God wants us to go further all the time. Why? Not that we could have more miles under our spiritual odometer, but that we might know him better by being his students. I took Latin in high school, and we were called Discipuli. Sawe Discipuli. Sawe te magistra. She would say, good morning, students. And we would say, good morning, teacher that we would want to be taught by these things and taught by God and by His Spirit and by His Word. And that's discipleship, following Him with all your life. Previously, we saw Saul, the Pharisee, believing he was following God, and yet he was persecuting the church, arresting them, killing them. And yet Jesus called him to greater discipleship, to actually know Him, to actually follow Him, to actually serve Him, to actually advance God's kingdom, not with violence of sword, but with violence of word. That God's word is, would be the sword that Paul would take up and bring to the world. And God knocked him off his high horse. Paul became the 12th apostle, I believe. He preached to the Gentiles, but as we saw, he was rejected by his own people, by the Jews. And God said that this would happen. And yet God allowed him to go to the Jews. And that's how he gets here today, that he tried to preach to the Jews. They started to riot, and yet Paul gets in trouble for it. And Paul goes on trial. He goes before kings and governors. And they all go... He hasn't done anything wrong, but we got to send him to Caesar. Paul appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen. He pulled out his Roman passport and said, hey, you can't treat me like this. Send me to Caesar. And so Paul preaches to kings and rulers with that. And that was God's prophecy for his life when he got saved, when he was knocked off the horse, when um, Ananias came to see him. That man, that, not Ananias, was that his name? The guy who came to see him who was afraid, uh, you know, that, hey, This was God's call in his life, to go to the Gentiles, to maybe speak to the Jews here and there, but to really go before kings. And like we said, there was no greater king in the whole land but Caesar. And I'm thankful that Caesar existed because now we have Caesar's salad, right? And I want to repeat this saying from Ray Comfort. He says, the Christian believes the Bible because he has met its author. We've said that before, that I believe the Bible obviously is true. We go through it. We look at it. We can see that there's scientific fact. You can dig things up and see things archaeologically that the Bible says are true, but other religious books uh, say things happen, and then when you research them, they never happened. So the Bible is true, but beyond the intrinsic truth of it, I know its author. God showed up in my life and forgave me, and so that gives me cause to believe that everything that he says is true. 
Because of that, that's the motive for me to believe it, other than the fact that it's true. Those, all those things are good, and I love truth. But the second statement I want to say is, we had the difference of discipleship, but there's the difference of relationship. The difference of relationship. That when we know somebody, it creates a difference in how we perceive them in our life, right? We can know, we can know who George Washington is, right, uh, historically, but we don't know him personally. And so we get a different view on somebody when we know them personally. When you first meet somebody after you've known them for a while, you begin to see their flaws. You begin to see what they're really like. You see that maybe they were just in a bad mood the day that you met them. And they're really not a mean person. They're really a kind person. You get to know them by spending time with them. And the only way to get to know somebody truly is by spending time with them and being around them and seeing how they treat others, how they uh, clean their room, whatever it is. You know, I can see the room. You can tell us a lot about somebody the more time you spend with them. Because a lot of times the first time you meet somebody, whether it's a job or otherwise, you put on your best. You try and look your best that they might hire you. But after a while they say, oh, well, he doesn't wear a suit every day, right? Look how I'm dressed today. You get to know them. And that's the difference in relationship. When we actually know Jesus, we know the author of the Bible, suddenly it's not the Ten Commandments anymore. It's not just rules we have to follow. Because we know God, we love Him, we want to follow Him. When He says not to do things that aren't even necessarily commandments, or even if He commands us to do something, we don't take it as some tough law. We go, oh, that's my father, of course. Yeah, Dad. Of course I'll go shovel the walk, Dad. I want to help you. I want to be outside and do things with you, like my son said. Dad, help, have me help you do work outside. I want to work with you. That's fantastic. I hope it's not just my son going, my dad works all the time. The only way he gets to spend time with him is to work with him. Hopefully we do other things together. But when we know each other, when we love each other, we want to be involved with each other and be around each other. And that's the difference in the relation. When we know God and we know his commandments, we know the heart behind them. We know he's not a mean God, an unjust God, because we've gotten around him. We go, oh, that's why you told me not to do that. Not because you don't want me to have fun but because you know it's going to hurt me in the end. So God, we pray that as we know you, God, help us know you more through your word this morning. Anyone listening to my voice in this room or on the podcast, that may they come to know you better and know your truth and follow you and be your disciple for all their days. We love you, God. Speak to us, we pray, and help us follow you more every day and lay aside every weight and every sin that would ensnare us, we ask God. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read. Uh, we're going to take uh, 12 verses here in Acts 27. We're going to take them in little chunks and kind of go through them. So let's read the first two verses of Acts 27 together. It says, When it was decided that we should sail into Italy, they handed Paul and some other prisoners over to the centurion of the Augustan regiment named Julius. Boarding a ship from uh, Adramidium, we put out to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus and Macedonian and Thessalonica was with us. We see that it was time to go to Rome. That Paul had been in prison. Paul had been for these guys. They dragged their feet. They took them, you know, in the judicial system. It takes time. And they finally decided to say, okay, now it's time to send Paul to Rome. And as we'll see, just like with any government decision, it's always late. It always takes too long. It's never the right time. And as you see, they're going to be getting ready to go before winter. Uh, uh, and it's not a good time to sail. But it's time to go to Rome. And this centurion, this uh, uh, soldier, this uh, 
captain of the uh, the Roman soldiers, maybe over 400 guys even, maybe even more, uh, varied during the years. Uh, but he was over this large troop of guys, and he was put in charge to take Paul to Rome, to make sure that Paul got on the right boats. Paul got all the way from Israel to Italy, which today, you know, he'd probably get on a flight, be there in an hour or two, and it wouldn't be a big deal, and probably wouldn't even cost that much money. But then, that's a big deal. That was from the eastern end of the Roman Empire, all the way to the capital of the Roman Empire. That was a big deal to get there by foot, by boat, by any means. It was not an easy thing to do. And just as a little bit of context, I don't know necessarily applied to Roman centurions, but when a Roman was given um, a prisoner in their charge, if they lost that prisoner, it would mean the prisoner's penalty, even the death penalty, would come upon them. So just like, remember, the, the apostles were in prison and there was an earthquake and the prison guard thought that they had all escaped and was about to kill himself because he knew that the, the penalty was death and torture and probably crucifixion. And they said, no, 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 don't do it. We're all still here. It was a big deal. You wouldn't want to lose these prisoners. There was a, a penalty on it. Uh, and the Roman Empire was, uh, was no kind empire. But they get this ship from uh, Adramidium. Uh, it was a seaport in Mysia, so basically kind of south of Istanbul in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. But I bring this up because I looked up the name, and normally I wouldn't say it, but I thought it was interesting. It says that the name of the city, Adramidium, is I shall abide in death, or I will live in death. I don't know if Adramidium was a hard town or not. Uh, maybe they were spiritual, right? But that they would abide in death. And I think that it's interesting that a boat from this town and obviously you can't read too much into it, but a boat from this town is taking Paul ultimately to his death. That Paul would eventually go before Caesar, Paul would eventually die and be killed. And Paul is also the one who wrote Philippians 1.21 under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That this journey for Paul wasn't going to get any better for him, wouldn't eventually lead to his freedom, Physically, he would lead to his death, but spiritually, he would ultimately be free uh, in heaven with it. And verse 2 says, with us. That if you remember that uh, Luke and Acts were written by the same guy, Luke. And Luke used to be a doctor. And Luke was a doctor. Usually doctors back then were worked for rich people and were kind of sometimes even slaves. Uh, and this Luke was given to Paul and to go along with Paul and loved God and pursued God, but his master let him go with Paul and serve Paul in the gospel. Think about that, being a rich person, having a doctor, and coming to faith, and your servant comes to faith, and you see a guy like Paul, and you say, no, 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 I don't need you anymore. I'll get another doctor. You go with Paul. You serve this man of God. What a, what a gift to the Lord that is. But Paul was with them, and we see that Aristarchus, their friend, went with them as well. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. Remember, Paul, uh, Luke wrote all this stuff. Uh, verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon, remember Tyre and Sidon, uh, if you remember reading the Old Testament a lot, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him to leave to go to his friends and be given care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Sailing across the sea off of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. 
We sailed slowly for many days and arrived with difficulty off Anitis, and as the wind did not allow us to proceed, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Uh, sailing past it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lycia. As much time had been lost and as the voyage was now dangerous, because the Day of Atonement was already over, Paul advised them. And we'll stop there. I know that's a weird stop in the middle of the sentence, but uh, I thought it was fitting for where we were at this morning. So let's go back. They're about to get on a boat. Paul's got Luke with him and now Aristarchus, his buddies. And it says that Julius treated Paul kindly. This soldier, Paul was a prisoner, right? Paul didn't have to take anybody with him. Paul could have been bound in chains, thrown in the bottom of the boat, and Julius could have gotten his job done and gotten the same pat on the back from his boss as if he treated Paul kindly. There was no need to treat Paul kindly, but Julius did. Now, I don't know that Julius came to faith at all. We'll see. But he was kind to Paul. He knew he saw Paul, an older man, a man who was a godly man. Paul probably preached the gospel to him. That this guy looked favorably upon Paul. I was like, this guy's around hardened criminals. He fights guys all day. He's a hard soldier. And he sees Paul and he goes, you know what? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of this guy. That God's favor came to Paul on this journey through this Gentile, through this Roman, through this soldier. Right? God's kindness and favor can come upon us through all sorts of people in our lives. I say all the time that I've, God's, I've had God's favor at work, and I pray that that lasts as long as it does. But that comes through unbelievers. Most people I work with are unbelievers. And God shows me kindness and favor through it and bless me with a good job and I work from home and have money to feed my family. Right? And I don't work for a Christian boss, although Trey's Catholic. It's, you know, we don't need to get into the differences there, but God's given me favor from him. And if you remember too, contextually, their prison system is not like our prison system. You don't get three square meal a day. There's no cable TV. There's no fed Uncle Matt take, taking you to the doctor when you're sick. But the people in your life had to come take care of you. You were in jail. You wanted to eat. Well, people had to bring you food. You want to change your clothes or a book to read? Your friends had to come and bring it to you. Or you would literally sit there and rot. And that's pretty cruel. But I think in some sense, it prevented overcrowding. And it prevented taxpayer money from going to the prison system. Uh, although it likely meant a, a slow and painful and awful existence for most people in jail. Um, imagine I were to go to jail. I don't have a job anymore. How would mommy have to make money or my wife make money? And then somehow bring me food as well? How often would I eat? Now imagine I didn't have friends. Imagine I was a bad guy. And I had no one to care for me. What would happen to me in prison? But Luke is with Paul and now their friend Aristarchus. And so they head out on this journey. And they go up to Sidon. Now, I don't know what port they left from, but if they're coming from the area of Jerusalem, that's, you know, 60 to 100 miles in just one day. That's not very far. We travel, you know, we travel that far in an hour in the car. And yeah, that was a full long day and probably a very, you know, that seems like a lot of miles to cover in a day on a ship. So that was a full day. But it said that they were on the, uh, you know, the windward and leeward. Windward is on the side where all the wind comes. And leeward is on the side that the wind doesn't come on. Usually it's on a hill or a landmass. And you can kind of see it when we get wind coming in from the west. You'll feel this side of the house shake. And that side, you know, the side that doesn't get the wind doesn't. You'll see the wind drifts around it. But that's very important for sailing. 
That's very important for lots of activities that are outside. When we get high wind warnings, not to drive with the trailer, to watch where we're going. And for us, uh, you know, they were very in tune with the weather. We are out here in Montana are very in tune with the weather as well. We're not going to go over a pass if there's a storm. I look at uh, the, ca- the cameras and the weather and the road reports to see if the roads are icy before I make a trip out to the Bitterroot or somewhere else. Um, you know, or if you go in a long stretch of uninhabited area, you want to know you're not going to get into a snowstorm or a squall. Um, and these are things that a lot of people these days don't understand. That people just live in a city and get on a bus and, and don't understand that the weather plays a big part in travel, even in our day and age, uh, when we're not in a sheltered uh, little area. But this boat for Paul was a shuttle bus. It was kind of a, a commuter boat for him, although the boat wasn't really a commuter boat. Um, but he would take this boat to eventually board on another boat. He would go get on the ship that is from Greece that's going to go to Italy. So he sails north to get on another boat, and then he's going to sail west to go to Italy. Uh, It's kind of like when we fly across the country to see family. We'll fly to Denver. We can't get a plane out of Missoula or Bozeman or Helena to go straight to where we need to go. There's just not enough traffic. So what do they do? We take a smaller plane to go to a bigger airport where there's a lot of planes that go to a lot of places, and then we take that bigger airplane to go to the place we ultimately need to go. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's taking a regional boat to go get on a bigger boat that's going to go the longer distance to Rome. And he says that they sailed slowly, that the wind did not allow them. And again, it's interesting to think about how tied to the earth they were for travel, that they could plan and they could purpose to go do something, but if it wasn't windy... (laughs) They weren't going anywhere. They could get out the oars, but they're not going to get very far. Uh, In fact, they didn't have any motors. And like in Ben-Hur, they didn't have a a horde of slaves underneath to power that ship. That was a military vessel that would have that. That wouldn't be bound by the wind, right? So if there was no wind, there was no go. Can you imagine that? I love it when it's calm. But if I had to have a boat, I'd prefer wind all the time. And John 3, 8, Jesus said, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. When it gets windy here, we hear it, right? And we listen to the sound of the solar wind from that Parker solar probe and how crazy it was that you could listen to the sound of it from the magnetic waves. But Jesus says, you cannot tell where the wind comes from and where it goes, right? We can say, oh, well, the wind was maybe coming from the mountains over there. We hear it whistling as it comes down and it's going down that way, down into town, down in the valley. But I don't know where it originated. Sometimes that wind comes from the West and California and the Pacific. And we get rain and we get wet weather. Other times it comes from the Arctic and we get freezing cold things. So we can guess, but we don't know where it started. We can't trace it back to where it goes. And Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That if you have God's Spirit in your life, you're going to be blown around by God to different places that other people might not figure out where you came from. You might not be able to figure out where you're going, but all you know is you're blowing in the wind. Your sails are open. God's breath is on you and you're moving through life. You go to places you never expected you would go. You never thought you could go. And sometimes you go to places that you always desired to go, but you never knew how you would ever get there. I always desire to go to Montana. I never knew how I would get to Montana. 
In fact, I shelved it and forgot about it for years until God's wind began to blow and he blew our family to Montana. That he blew us here. I didn't know how we would get here. I would have been afraid and impossible to do it on my own, but God created the situations and the opportunities and the preparation and the calling to come here. And that's the difference of the Spirit, not necessarily our life, but a life that's led by God and blown by God that you can't tell where it's coming or where it's going. And just like these ships, when God's wind blows, we'll find our way progressing. But when God's wind isn't blowing, or maybe our sails are down, or maybe we're preventing His wind from blowing in our lives, maybe God doesn't want us to move. Maybe you desire to go and do something, and you're trying with all your might. You're rowing, but it's not going anywhere. Well, maybe God's wind's not blowing, or maybe your sails are in the wrong way. But as someone who's led by the Spirit, you're going to go where God wants you to go, and that's the only place you can go. You try and go back the other way, it's going to be very hard to go against the wind. And I've known many people in life, and I'm sure we all have to some degree, but there seems to be a difference I've found, even amongst believers. That there seems to be two groups, and not the sheep and the goats, but those who are blown by the wind of the Spirit, and those who are blown by the wind of the world. Let me repeat that. Those who are blown by the wind of the Spirit, and those who are blown by the wind of the world. That those who are tossed by the storms in this life, and there are those who seem to walk on water. I don't mean perfectly all the time. I just mean as a general course in life, as you know them and see them, and as they move and go in life, you begin to see a pattern uh, of, where, <laughs> of how they live and what they're about. And the difference in discipleship is not always being perfect, but it's a course of life that is sailing on God's winds. How often do we travel in life? And we're trying to get to a place we want to go, but we make a wrong turn. Or we turn, like I was with, the, when we were at the party, I was with a friend and we went to go to the store and pick up the pizza. And there's so many exits out of that parking lot over by Target where you can make a right and can't make a left. And there's only like one you can make a left. And I always try and find it, but I forget which one it is. I used to know, but I just, I don't care enough to remember, I guess. And I found the wrong one. And I had to go back through this little development. I wanted to go home, but I made a wrong turn, right? That's going to happen in life. Does that mean I didn't want to go home? No, it just means whatever the case may be to him, I made a mistake. But the difference in discipleship is not always being perfect, but like I said, it's a course of life sailing on God's winds. That your boat in life, your vessel in life may not be shipwrecked, but may it be sailed home to heaven. And that gets there by making decisions based on the wind of the Spirit, based on prayer, based on the desires of God's Spirit, not on the desires of our flesh. That when our flesh desires to go somewhere in life, we don't want to blow it in that direction. We don't want to put the sails up in that direction. We don't want to go with that current. We want to go with God's current. We want to go with God's Spirit. Excuse me. Whether it be moving into a new house, moving to a new hound, town, taking a different job, going to a certain school, making certain friends, whatever it is, that those who are led by the Spirit are not going there for the school district. They're not going there to make more money, but they're going there because they felt God and felt called by God and want to follow God 
Remember, we want to follow him, not just have him be a part of our life. It doesn't work that way. That he is the way, the truth, and our life, right? But we want to follow by God. Why? That we might minister there. That our heart is there to minister there. Remember I was saying to Pastor Chuck that if your heart's already there, just go. Don't sit around. Go. So whether the money was better or the money was worse, whether the neighborhood was safer or the neighborhood was rougher, it doesn't matter so much to the person who's led by the Spirit as long as they're going to the place that God has for them. I've heard and known of people who would move from a place that's very safe to a place that I wouldn't even want to go shopping in because they felt God called them to minister there. And God bless them. And I've also been known people and been called by people, called by God to go from a place that was very one way to a way that is very good, but the only reason that we want to really be there is because God would have us be there. And it didn't matter so much again because it only mattered whether God was blowing them there by his wind, right? And so Paul and these guys, uh, Luke and Aristarchus and the soldiers and the, the crew of the boat, they sailed around Cyprus. I don't have a map for you, but it's this little island with these little fingers that stick out that's kind of near uh, 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 Turkey and uh, Israel and all that area. But they stay near the coastlines. Why? Because they're trying to avoid bad weather. Again, how important the weather was for them sailing. They're looking for wind. They're not getting a lot of wind. Even today, when you fly west, you're flying into the wind, so it takes longer to fly west than it does to fly east. Uh, and less fuel and all these other things. But because the weather wasn't favorable, because they weren't getting enough wind, they lost a lot of time. And it's not just like me when we go on vacation. I'm like, let's go, let's go. Let's get up. Let's get in the car. Let's pack. Let's go. Let's go in and go to the bathroom. Let's get back out and get on the road. Let's not dilly-dally at the gas station. Oh, we lost an hour here. Let's keep going. It was because it wasn't windy. The boat would be there and be a calm day. They're all ready. They could probably see where they want to go, but they can't get there yet. And so a lot of time was wasted. And it was starting to become dangerous how much time that they had lost. Like sometimes we're out somewhere we're like, oh, well, I know it's going to snow later. We should get home. Or it's starting to get dark and we've got a long trip over the pass. We need to leave at a certain time so we're not traveling in the dark when it's dangerous. But they're getting to a time of year when it's dangerous. And Paul, being Jewish, uses the Day of Atonement as a good reference. And, and I should know when this is, but I don't. I had to look it up. But the Day of Atonement is in early October. And this past year, winter came for us in October. And winter is still here. October, November, December, January, February, March. Six months later, winter is still here. Right? This is, you know, I don't know if this is a weather shift or whatever. But they knew it was coming. And winter is one thing on land, but winter is another thing on water. And it's not the coldest area out there, but they get serious storms in the winter. Um, you know, the seasons shift to a stormy season. In 2 Timothy 4.21, Paul says to Timothy, he says, do your utmost to come before winter. I mean, you did not want to travel in winter in those days. Even now, when you go to sell a house, you don't really sell it in the winter. It's hard to look at. No one wants to be out. But even then, you don't want to move in the winter, especially here where it's harder to do so, when the journey is longer, when if we had to move somewhere and had to travel over a pass four or five times and it was snowy and icy and dangerous and low visibility, that would be really hard to move and drive a truck and drive a trailer, right? 
And Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15 through 16 and 20, 21, he says, we've read this before in Revelation, where he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, let those who are in Judea flee, flee to the mountain. So he's saying, when you see the Antichrist come, you guys run away. When this happens, run away. Get, just go live in the wilderness like in Red Dawn. And Jesus says to them, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. He goes on to talk about the great tribulation that's to come. He says, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Would it be easier or harder to live in the mountains in the backcountry now or in June? In June. Right? Because it's warmer. You could camp. You could tent. Now it's, everything's covered in snow. It's wet. It's more than that. It's cold. A couple months ago when we had negative 38, I don't know that we would have survived 100 years ago. It would have been really hard to just survive. Thankfully, we have a house and propane, and propane freezes a couple degrees cold, so that's kind of scary, or liquefies, rather. But John, uh, Jesus says in John 9.4 as well, he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. That man, winter is coming. It's hard to travel in winter, but even worse than winter is night when no one can work. That there's a time in life when things are too hard to do anything. Like we talked about before, we prepared, we got things done early last fall, and that was good. But there's a spiritual time coming when you're not going to be able to get the things of God done because it's too dark. And we'll see all the time before a snowstorm. I think even more so on the East Coast than out here. But there, before a big storm, people would go to the store and buy up all the milk and bread. Well, it's because they're unprepared. <laughs> They're unprepared. They know a storm's coming. Uh, of course, they could probably get to the store the next day. They don't really need it. That's another story. But God would have us be prepared, and not just in the things of the flesh, like milk and bread, but in the work of heaven and the things of the Spirit. That when the storm comes, we don't have to run out to the store. We're ready to go. You know, uh, the, the winch on the plow broke yesterday, or the, the metal didn't. I found it was actually rubbing and sawing a hole in part of the bracket. Um, I guess it wasn't aligned right. But I realized that, man, if Harbor Freight wasn't open, <laughs> I would be out of luck. I wouldn't be able to go get the replacement part. So in my mind, I would go, okay, next time I go out, I'm going to look for some extra pieces in case this happens again that I can have them. And I keep a little list of that stuff that I'm prepared. And when I went to go get that TV, as an anecdote here, I got that TV upstairs. The old lady saw the stuff in the back of the truck. I got a couple tool bags, a couple blankets, a broom, and like a, a piece of blocking, whether I use it for jacking for the trailer. But she said, oh, she goes, I love it. You're so prepared. And I go, well, I'm so prepared because I've had many times in life when I wasn't prepared, and I've learned from those experiences to be prepared for the next time. Um, and then, usually that's how the way things work. But then it's growing dark outside. And it's bright right now, especially with the snow. And it's already cold outside too. Sorry, still winter. But being a Christian is very hard in our world and it's getting even harder. Now granted, I don't think it's as hard as it was in Paul's day in some ways, but it's getting close to that and I think it's worse in some other ways as well. People hadn't heard the gospel before. They were receptive to it in the dark world. Now our world is so dark and evil, they don't even want the gospel. They'll hate you just for saying it. The news, the things going on in the world. 
There's that weight of grief and righteous anger, like even Jake, when I showed you the people robbing the other people, how angry you were in a righteous way. And these things I feel just reading the headlines and the tweets and other things. And yet God sees all of that. I can choose or not to choose to look at the news and read a tweet on my phone. If I want to have a good day or a bad day, right? <laughs> I can look at it during the day when I'm already stressed with work. But at nighttime, Ash, you know, you'll try and talk to me about news. I'm like, babe, like, I'm done looking at news for the day. I'm here. I got to relax. <laughs> that there's a time when I can handle it, a time when I can't. But God sees it all the time. He, his feed doesn't get turned off. And in fact, he sees more than just the headlines. He sees the hearts of everybody on earth. And the things we do in secret, the things that don't make the headlines, God's got on TV right in front of him, so to speak. And I don't know how he has not thoroughly just burned this place to the ground yet. Every last one of us. Even believers. That's because he loves us. The Bible says that God is love. And love is patient. He's being patient that no one would perish. But that time and that day is coming when we will. When the end will come. And I believe it's coming very fast. And I think God would ask us, are we ready for that? Are we ready for winter? Are we ready for the night to come when there will be no more time to work? Let's go on and read the last few verses of our study this morning. Verse, uh, end of verse 9 says, uh, Paul advised them saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss. Not only the cargo of the ship, but also of our lives. I don't think Paul said this lightly. He said, guys, this is going to be a bad trip. We're going to lose all the cargo and we're going to die. But the centurion was persuaded more by the captain and the owner of the ship than by what Paul said. And since the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority decided to sail on from there. If somehow we might reach Phoenix, a harbor in Crete, which is another island, facing southwest and northwest and winter there. Paul says, I perceive. I perceive, and this is great. I want to see if there's anything deeper to it, but it's not other than just the practical deepness of the word. To be a spectator, to look at, to behold, to view attentively, to survey. You know, when they were getting ready to do the poles and they get the little things out and they do the road and they, they measure the road. To perceive with the eyes, to enjoy the presence of one, to discern to ascertain, to find out by seeing. And how important it is to be observant, to look around and pay attention. Like we talked about what's going on around you, what people look like, what they're doing, where cars are parked, if it's dark, if there's a light over there, where the exit is, to be safe and be wise and be ready for these things. Because if you're not, that's how you get caught off guard in life. And Paul was observant. Paul was a smart and wise man. I don't believe he was being just a worry wart here. Guys, we're going to go on this. I don't want to go to jail and we're all going to die. <laughs> you know, I don't think he wasn't trying to get out of things. I believe he looked at the weather. He looked at their attitude. He looked at their cargo. He saw everything that was going on. He knew that the government sent him out too late, <laughs> so to speak. And he knew that this trip was not going to end well. Sometimes you just get that feeling. You just know that this circumstance in life is adding up to not be good. That there's a reason we shouldn't go, a reason we shouldn't do it. 
And Proverbs 26, 13 says, the lazy man says, there's a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. Well, why does a lazy man say that? It's not because there's a lion out there. There might be. You know, when we go in the woods and it says bear country, what, does that mean we shouldn't hike there? No, they put a hiking trail. It just means be observant. Watch out. Be prepared for a bear if you see one and know how to handle yourself. It doesn't mean don't go hiking out there. But lazy people come up with excuses all the time. Oh, I don't want to go to work today. Oh, I don't want to do this today. Or I should do this. Or, And people find all sorts of excuses, whether those reasons are real, whether there really is a lion in the streets or not, to not do what they should, to not do what their responsibility is. And worse than that, I think, in a way, people come up with all sorts of excuses to not do what's good for them, not do what's even fun, to not even take a mild risk, to go on an adventure, to ride a roller coaster because they're scared of it. And yet you're going to be safe in that roller coaster. You're safer in that roller coaster than you were on the car over. And it's going to be a lot of fun. What's the big deal? You have a feeling? You feel scared for a minute? Is it should be enjoyed. And I get it if you can't go on a roller coaster for what reason. But I don't want us, and I don't think God wants us to miss out on life for unreasonable fears. Why? Because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. That's right. But this wasn't Paul. Paul wasn't being foolish here. Paul was wise, and wisdom looks at the reality of life around them and makes sober decisions. Says, well, it looks like the interest rates are too high. The market's not good. So I can't do that right now. There isn't an open door for me to do that. It would be too much of a risk to do that. Now, if you pray, and as you pray, God says, that's okay. Still go ahead and do it. I'll make a way. Then that's a different story. But wisdom should at least look around and, and decide whether it's a wise decision to, to do things at a certain time. There's a time for everything under the sun, and sometimes it's just not time to do things. For instance, one thing would be not going to Mexico right now. The government has issued a warning to college students, don't, don't go to Mexico on your spring break. Why? Because they're kidnapping and killing people. I think that's probably good advice anyway, not to mention the foolishness of spring breaking in Mexico. But also the banks that are failing right now. Consider what institutions you put your money in. Maybe start to take your money out. Or a few years ago, my brother, who I, he was never like opposed to guns, but he never someone was into them. The things begin to happen in the world. And even in a tough state like New Jersey, he finds a way to get a gun. Because he's seeing the things that are going on around and going, I'm not prepared for them. I should be prepared for them. Even if it's a slow possibility, I don't want to be in that place where I don't have it. Right? It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it, right? And so that in life, there are logical responses to stimuli that are not solely rooted in fear. A lot of people think that being prepared in any amount, a little bit or a lot, is just because of fear. Although I would argue that the fear a few years ago of not having toilet paper and so stocking up on toilet paper was a good fear to have. You know, it's one thing to go hungry. It's another thing to... Do not have toilet paper. But sincerely, we shouldn't be led by fear. We should be led by the Spirit. And the Spirit may be the one who, after careful prayer consideration, tells us to count the cost and press on through the storm ahead of us. To press on into the fire, or worse, to death. 
Jesus. He said, Father, if, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew the cross laid ahead of him. Jesus knew he would be crucified. And he said, God, if there's another way, let's do that. But not my will. Your will, Lord. And he goes on to bleed, sweat. Philippians 3, 7, Paul says, What things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul lost everything in his life. People believe he lost his wife. He lost all his friends. He lost his status. He didn't have a house anymore. He was out on the road as an apostle. He lost all his wealth. He was probably wealthy. But he says, I count it all trash. Take it all to the dump for me, why don't you? Because I'm getting Jesus Christ in return. Luke 14, uh, 26 33, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough money to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him? Or what king, to make war against another king, does not uh, get counsel and figure out his military strategy first? Right? So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words. Now, Jesus doesn't say, you want to be a Christian? Immediately throw out everything you have into the trash. Well, maybe. When I first got saved, there were a lot of movies, there was a lot of music that I put in a box, went down to the dumpster, and threw in the trash. Because there's no redeeming quality in them. Now, some of those movies I've bought back because I realized that there's okay. I could have had a couple of them. But the point was is that God's Spirit led me to say that I don't want anything to do with any of this because I have Jesus now and these things will get in the way of me and Jesus. But it doesn't mean I can't have things. But what it means is that the things in my life, if Jesus tells me to get rid of them, I should get rid of them. And don't worry, that's none of you guys. <laughs> you guys are mine. No matter what you do, I can't get rid of you. Thankfully, right? But that's the cost of discipleship. That if anything gets between you and Jesus, it needs to go away. Even if it's a good thing, like a friendship. Even if it's a good thing, like a career or a desire to be something in life. And I think the difference between those two people groups we talked about here as we're getting ready to close that the difference between these two groups of people, even with Christianity, is that cost of discipleship. That there's a cost associated with being Christian. We speak about salvation being free. And one million percent, salvation is free. It does not cost you and I anything to come to faith in Jesus and be forgiven of our sins and go to heaven. But it should cost you everything and it will and must and requires everything to follow Him the rest of your life. You can't receive the free gift of salvation and continue living like you were. You can't receive the free gift of salvation and expect your life not to change at all. It must. 
If you are saved, it must change. It's, it's an equation, guys. It doesn't work. I would say you're not saved if you're not changed. And you're not changed unless you are saved. And I think the difference here is maybe threefold. One being that we either don't know the cost or that there is even a cost or what even is the payment. Maybe you come to faith and you just know that you need forgiveness for your sins and that's fantastic. You just understand that Jesus is the Savior. That's wonderful. That's perfect. That's the first step. But maybe you haven't gotten farther than that. Maybe you haven't been learned and taught and discipled to know what comes next. Number two, maybe you know that cost, but maybe it's too much. Maybe you'll give a little bit, but not all. Maybe you won't go out to the bars anymore, but you're still going to drink a little bit. Whatever the case may be. They're like those types of soil, right? The four types of soil that they grew up quickly, but there was hard stones in the ground that prevented roots from going down, so they withered. Or they grew up, but then the thorns, the cares of life came in and, and choked it out. It was only the good soil that grew and produced fruit, right? Because it allowed the soil to be dug up and the, and the, the stones to be taken out and the thorns to be pruned back in their life. And number three, Perhaps in either of these cases, they're missing the cost of what Jesus paid for them on the cross. Because I believe when we realize, at least a little bit, I mean, who can really know and understand the full depth of the cross in this life? But when we realize even a fraction of what he paid, and not only the penalty of the cross, the death, the pain, the loss, the suffering, becoming of sin, but what he's worth... That this is God's only Son? That He's the creator of the universe? He holds everything all together? He's holy and perfect and wonderful and loving and kind? And He paid that for us? It's not just the cost of the cross, but the worth of the person who paid it. That that cost of discipleship to us should be, in a sense, nothing. Okay, Lord. What is this worth compared to you? It's rubbish, Lord. It should be easily discarded, Lord. Sure, I'll throw that out. Yes, I'll break that off. Yes, I won't do that anymore. Forgive me, Lord. Because the reward is I get to know you. That this thing prevents me from knowing you, being close to you, hearing your voice and loving you. Like that song saying, that that's the point of it all. Not that we would go farther in life, but that we would grow closer to the life. Jesus. Like going on a date with my daughter yesterday or hanging out with my son or doing things with my other kids. That's what it's about. Being together. Like the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And we're going a little bit long, but we'll close here. As Philippians says, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to Christ's death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And Paul knew that this was about being made into the image of Christ. And yet he knew that, hey, guys, this isn't a wise decision to keep going. 
and the centurion was really in charge of the ship, even though there was a captain and an owner. The centurion was in charge, and in the end, he took the advice of that captain and owner over Paul. Paul, you're a great guy. I, I like you. You can take your friends with you, but you don't know anything about sailing. i got to listen to these guys. The captain was probably a hard, seafaring man. Perhaps he was stubborn, unwilling to be afraid or not press on just because of a little storm. Oh, it's just a little storm. We'll be all right. Or maybe he was worried about winter, but he's like, we can get there in time. If we push now, we'll get there in time. You know, there's lots of old wisdom that comes in life from seafaring folks just about the weather. You know, being on the water, you know the weather. But even the weatherman in our day and age is wrong when we have radar and satellite imagery and computers, let alone this guy in a boat, right? And the owner himself potentially only cared about the money. He was paying for this voyage. He owned this boat. Every second that this boat was not carrying cargo was the second that this boat was not making him money, right? Maybe this cargo had to get there to expire and then he'd be on the hook for it. Maybe they wouldn't give him car. You know, all these business concerns are on his mind. And even besides that, I think this was the Lord, really. The Lord making sure that this, that they would go through this storm, as we'll see next time, that Paul would get to Italy before winter. But the port they were in couldn't hold them. The parking spot wasn't big enough for the boat. And worse than that, the, the, this port, you know, if you look in the water, the port was open to the weather. So all those weather, all those wind, all those waves would come crashing in. And if this boat parked there for the winter, the boat would be destroyed. And so they had to get out of there. They couldn't stay there. And so they aimed to reach the south side of Crete, which is an island potentially 400 miles away at least. Uh, it's a sheltered harbor. Uh, it has the island with them and the winter storms from the west coming. So this was a bigger port, a safer port that was protected for them, but it was far. And it was a long journey to make, let alone a long journey to make with winter barreling down upon them. And so it says the majority decided, and that's democracy, when the majority decides something. If we all took a vote here, we would need four votes to be a majority in our family, right? But there's a saying that, you know, uh, if your friends are all jumping off a bridge, would you jump off it too? Just because they're all doing it, why are you going to do it? And a representative republic is a better idea because, you know, just because something gets a, the popular vote, just because it's popular doesn't mean it's good or it's right or that it's going to work. Because the voice of reason can sometimes be just a single lone voice. The voice of an old man in chains on a boat who's not even a sailor might be the voice you need to listen to. But Ecclesiastes 9, 16 and 17 says, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. That when someone's poor, even if they're wise, people go, oh, he doesn't have any money, so I guess I shouldn't listen to him. You should see the people that listen to other people just because they're rich. And these people are clearly fools, clearly have no idea what they're talking about. And he says that words spoken quietly should be heard rather than shout of ruler of fools. That sometimes wisdom is that still small voice. Like in Isaiah says, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn your right hand or turn to the left, you'll hear the still small voice of God in your ear behind you saying that. So the wise person who's led by the Spirit of God, who's blown by the Spirit of God, not blown by the winds of the world, will listen to the Lord will pray and seek for God's wisdom despite what the world's wisdom says, despite what their own feelings say. We'll let God call the shots no matter what anything else 
says. And Lord, may that be us, that may we listen to you and be blown by you and God, go your way in life, no matter what anything else says in life. God, maybe be wise and look around and take heed and be observant. But God, if you're saying to go, we should go. If you're saying to stay, we should stay. But God, whatever those things are in life, God, help us follow you and count everything else as loss to know you better, God. So God, may you uh, fill us with your spirit, guide us this day, bless our friends and family, and ultimately your church at large. May we really be the church on earth. We ask you, God, in Jesus' name for your glory. Come soon. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.